welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Wednesday, July 10th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, a few more details emerge about the September debates, rumors abound that Amash may enter the race as a third-party challenger, a look at Biden's new campaign strategy, Yang's plan to revitalize American malls, Biden releases yet more tax returns, and McGrath rakes in record money in her Kentucky Senate race. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. To start the show, we now know where the third Democratic primary debate will be held, Houston, Texas. It'll be on September 12th and probably 13th, though it's certainly possible the second day might be cut. That'll happen if there aren't enough candidates who meet the stricter qualifications for that debate. The debates are still capped at a maximum of 20 candidates, but it is hard to imagine that many candidates passing all the tests required to reach the stage. The September debate will be hosted by ABC News and Univision, and like the June and July debates, will be both televised and streamed live on regular platforms like YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter with no need for a login. And a reminder on how candidates can get into that debate. They need to do two things. First, they need 130,000 donors with at least 400 different people in each of 20 different states. Second, they also need to get 2% or better in four different qualifying polls held between June 28th and August 28th. And those qualifying polls need to be held either in different geographic regions or conducted by different polling organizations. So that is a super heavy lift compared to the June and July debates, and we can expect to see a serious drop-off in candidates who can qualify for September. The candidates have until the end of the day on August 28th to reach that donor threshold, which is also the cutoff date for polling. And right now, here's the list of candidates who have already made it, with the assumption that a meteor doesn't strike every polling organization in the country. They are Biden, Buttigieg, Harris, Sanders, and Warren. There are, of course, others with very good odds right now. Both Castro and Yang have crossed the donor threshold, but they do need some more polling numbers to reach the stage. There are also candidates who are in the reverse situation, like Booker and O'Rourke, who are polling just fine, but need some more donors. Oh yeah, and in case you were wondering, there is no DNC debate in the month of August, so you can just, I don't know, have your own debate, or go outside or something. And one last reminder, we will have debate bingo for later this month and in September. I haven't made those cards yet since we don't know who's going to qualify yet, but I'll let you know when I know. On Independence Day, former Republican Congressman Justin Amash left his party and declared himself an independent. He wrote about that decision in an op-ed for the Washington Post, discussing at length the problems of partisanship, and specifically a two-party system that he described as being in, quote, a partisan death spiral, end quote. There's a link to his piece in the show notes, and it's worth a read if you're curious about Amash, who was formerly the only Republican in Congress to call for President Trump's impeachment. Now, of course, he's an independent doing the same. Reading here from Amash's op-ed, quote, Most Americans are not rigidly partisan and do not feel well represented by either of the two major parties. In fact, the parties have become more partisan in part because they are catering to fewer people, as Americans are rejecting party affiliation in record numbers. These same independent-minded Americans, however, tend to be less politically engaged than red team and blue team activists. Many avoid politics to focus on their own lives, while others don't want to get into the muck with the radical partisans, end quote. 
So here's the thing. If you're a politician who just quit his party, it is difficult to run again for that same office as an independent. Furthermore, if you believe that partisanship in general is the problem, and that the solution lies in more diversity of thought within politics, that strongly implies that you think it's vital to bust up the two-party system that holds power in this country today. So, if you're Justin Amash, you might be thinking right now, hey, I could run for president. Everybody else is doing it. In a piece for The Atlantic, David A. Graham sums it up. Quote, His disparagement of the two-party system points toward a third-party run. With a long record of principled libertarianism, even at his own political expense, Amash would be a natural standard-bearer for the libertarian party. I still wouldn't rule anything like that out, he said on CNN over the weekend. I have to use my skills, my public influence, where it serves the country best. End quote. And joining that in the Washington Post itself, Aaron Blake wrote, quote, Amash has real convictions and an apparent desire to take a stand even if he cannot win. It is also not entirely clear whether he would take more votes from Trump or the eventual Democratic nominee. While he has been a Republican and a founder of the Tea Party-aligned House Freedom Caucus, which he has also left, some early polling suggests his candidacy might actually benefit Trump in Michigan. End quote. So watch this space. While the Amash story is not purely Democratic primary-related news, he is definitely making waves among folks who are looking at the 2020 general election. And he's not even in it. Yet? In a story for Politico, Natasha Karecki goes deep on Joe Biden's campaign strategy, citing various sources either within or close to his campaign. I'm just going to go ahead and read a few lines from that story here to get us started. Quote, There are people that are all over Joe to get more aggressive, according to a source who spoke with Biden in recent days. People are very nervous. The source added that the July debate will be Biden's next big test. If he doesn't come out strong and swinging, you're going to see a lot of people leaving him. End quote. And yes, that last part, the thing about people leaving him, is a direct quote from the unnamed source. I think the implication there is that campaign staff would bail. The story discusses a clear shift in Biden's campaign in the weeks since the June debate. For example, he did a sit-down interview on CNN, which is the kind of appearance he just hasn't done before. He apologized for his segregationist senator remarks, which we covered on Monday. He has some friends and associates calling out Senator Kamala Harris, and he's amping up how much she talks about his eight years in the Obama administration, which is one of the best political assets he has right now. All of that adds up to a pivot. Prior to this, Biden essentially ignored the rest of the field and stayed above the fray. It seems like the first debate has changed that. Reading again from Politico, quote, A top Biden South Carolina surrogate, former state Democratic Party chair Dick Harputlian, said the campaign didn't need to take an aggressive approach before the Harris exchange. Until the debate, nobody had attempted to land a critical punch, he said. They're responding to deal with issues that arise from someone attacking the vice president's record. End quote. And there's one more bit here from the Politico article I want to note. This next section starts with a quote from former Pennsylvania Governor Ed Rendell. Quote, Kamala Harris got a lot of applause when she said Americans don't want to see a food fight. Then she took a whole platter of mashed potatoes and gravy and dumped them on the vice president, Rendell said. He then suggested that other campaigns were combing through Harris's record as a prosecutor, saying if she made mistakes, they're going to find them in her dossier, so be careful what you wish for. End quote. My analysis of this whole thing is essentially, boy, that first debate did matter. It turned up the volume on this race, like somebody walked in and flipped on the lights and the stereo turned on too. 
Right now, we're in kind of a media swing that's caused by that debate, plus the polling that came out right after it, and the Q2 fundraising numbers that have been trickling out. And it's only 20 days until the next debate. So I expect this next few weeks to be very busy for the campaigns as they prepare for the next round on stage. The Primary Ride Home is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of classes covering all kinds of skills. We're talking everything from business to gardening to journaling, you name it. So whether you've got a passion project you just need some knowledge to get through, or you're challenging yourself to move outside your comfort zone by learning a new skill, Skillshare has classes for you. Okay, let's talk about journaling. If you've ever thought, hey, maybe I should start a journal, maybe I'd find that relaxing or fun, or a pathway to getting better at writing. Well, there's a class for that on Skillshare. It's taught by Emily Gould, and it's called Creative Writing for All, a 10-day journaling challenge. In just half an hour, you'll learn everything you need to know to get started with a creative journal. Try it out, and I think you'll like what you write. So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for you. Get two free months. That is correct. Skillshare is offering Primary Ride Home listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com P-R-H. Again, that is Skillshare.com slash P-R-H to start your two free months today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Next up, let's talk about Andrew Yang's plan to deal with America's closing shopping malls. Now, I've read Yang's book, The War on Normal People, and he gets into this in the book. I want to start this by reading a few paragraphs from that. This is from page 32. Quote, When a mall closes or gets written down, there are many bad things that happen to the local community. First, many people lose their jobs. Each shuttered mall reflects about 1,000 lost jobs. At an average income of $22,000, that's about $22 million in lost wages for a community. An additional 300 jobs are generally lost at local businesses that either supply the mall or sell to the workers. It gets worse. The local mall is one of the pillars of the regional budget. The sales tax goes straight to the county and the state, and so does the property tax. When the property gets written down, the community loses a big chunk of tax revenue. This means shrunken municipal budgets, cuts to school budgets, and job reductions in local government offices. On average, a single Macy's store generates around $36 million a year. At current sales tax and property tax rates, that store, if closed, would leave a budget hole of several million dollars for the state and county to deal with. End quote. In an article for CityLab, Kristen Capps digs into Yang's American Mall Act, which is a proposal to use that mall infrastructure in a way that continues to serve communities. For instance, one problem is parking. Those giant parking lots might be put to better use if you realize they're empty most of the time. Another problem is zoning. 
if the malls are zoned so that only giant stores can be in them, and that zoning also requires other infrastructure like tons of parking, well, now you've got a systemic problem that spirals into mall closures. Caps wrote of the plan, quote, Yang hopes to move the needle with a policy that could potentially save dying mall parcels by turning them over to developers for housing, studios, or more productive, less auto-focused purposes. End quote. And here's a clip that Yang posted on Twitter from the Columbia Place Mall in Columbia, South Carolina, which is, of course, an early voting state. Now, because this was recorded in a desolate parking lot with a ton of wind, I did try to clean up the sound just a touch so you can hear it better, which does account for some of the weird quality changes in this clip. Anyway, listen in. Hey guys, we're here in Columbia, South Carolina, just uh, in the parking lot for Columbia Place, which was a, a mall. This mall uh, has definitely seen better days. So right now, 30% of malls are scheduled to close in the next four years. And if you've ever been to a ghost mall, it's a very, very eerie thing. It's a massive challenge to try and keep these structures vital and filled. Uh, because no one wants to go to the vast empty parking lot. So as you know, if you're uh, deep into the campaign, I have a proposal for the American Mall Act that, that'll put uh, matching grants and uh, property development incentives to try and help communities and private developers repurpose malls so that they don't become sinkholes, honestly. Let's do something about it, Yang Gang. Good seeing you all. So, look, the plan itself is actually very thin on details. I read it as less a plan than a problem statement with some sensible thoughts attached to it. Essentially, Yang lays out the problem, which is definitely real, and then says he'll spend $6 billion creating a fund that will, quote, help struggling malls attract businesses, schools, organizations, and entrepreneurs to find new uses for the buildings and commercial spaces, end quote. However, he doesn't suggest where that money would come from in the federal budget. Links to the policy and some more detail in the show notes if you are curious. Yesterday, Joe Biden and his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, released yet more of their tax returns and some other government-mandated financial statements. By the way, in the early days of this podcast, I spent a ton of time talking about people's tax returns. And if you do go back to the beginning of the show, you will learn that Biden holds a record in this field for releasing his returns for roughly the last 20 years. Okay, so what did the Bidens make? Well, in 2016, they made about $396,000. In 2017, that went up to $11 million. And in 2018, they made $4.6 million. Those last two years make Biden's income the highest of any candidate whose taxes I've reviewed this cycle. Though, I haven't had the chance to review some of the super wealthy candidates, and we now have several. So, you know, I'm curious to see what the billionaires are raking in, if they stay in the race and release their tax returns, that is. Reading from a CNBC summary by Tom Williams, quote, The Bidens paid about $3.7 million and $1.5 million in taxes for 2017 and 2018, respectively, about a third of their adjusted gross income. They gave roughly $1 million and $275,000 to charity in 2017 and 2018, respectively. End quote. Okay, so how come their income went up so much after Biden left the VP spot? Well, both members of the couple released books that brought in a pile of money. Plus, Joe Biden did a bunch of paid speaking gigs. Also, both of them brought in teaching salaries at several universities in those latter years, which brought in around half a million bucks each year. Nice work if you can get it. And last up today, a quick note on a Senate race in Kentucky. 
Former fighter pilot Amy McGrath has launched a bid to challenge Senator Mitch McConnell, who is, of course, the current Republican majority leader in the Senate. The big news there is not so much that a Democrat is challenging McConnell, it's that McGrath brought in $2.5 million in the first 24 hours of her campaign. That is a record for a Senate campaign, at least in its first day. It's more than two and a half times what former astronaut Mark Kelly brought in for his Arizona campaign in his first day. While that Kentucky race is just getting started, this is a rather shocking development. McGrath brought in roughly the same money in one day that many of these primary presidential candidates are raising over an entire quarter. One of the big themes we will examine as we get deeper into this election is whether Democrats have a chance to take back the Senate in 2020. If a Democratic Senate candidate can bring in this kind of money in Kentucky, where McConnell is actually super popular, I wonder how many people in the presidential primary field might take their own state's Senate races a little more seriously. You can bet we'll hear more about that in that Houston debate in September, assuming we still have two primary candidates from Texas in the race. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. So I was poking around on Twitter, checking on the weather. I follow a bunch of professional weather forecasters on Twitter, and it is a fascinating thing to look at, because look, I know nothing about meteorology, but these folks do, and they've been chattering about a likely hurricane forming in the Gulf of Mexico coming up this weekend. Maybe, slash, probably. Currently, it looks like Hurricane Barry is at the very least going to dump a ton of rain on Louisiana, East Texas, and Mississippi. So I know y'all are listening down there. As a former Gulf Coast resident myself, I urge you to stay safe. Keep your weather radios on, get your water bottles filled, and find a deck of cards. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. Tomorrow.